Welcome, I am your host, and this is the Unanswered Questions Podcast. Hello everyone, and welcome to another episode of my new podcast, Unanswered Questions, where every week we will endeavour to discuss a mysterious unsolved case that has many lingering unanswered questions. So I hope you enjoy, and as always, leave me some feedback on what you think about the show, and rate it as well. Now on to the show. This week we'll be talking about the mysterious list of deaths connected to the defence industry, specifically GEC Marconi, that occurred between 1972 and 1990. There have been mysterious deaths of people who worked for GEC Marconi, the defence arm of GEC, on the Stingray Torpedo Project between 1972 and 1988. However, there are some deaths after 1988 that are also included in this list, including the death of the British defence journalist Jonathan Moyle, who was found hanged in his Santiago hotel room on April 1st of 1990 has been the subject of speculation as being connected to the Marconi deaths. Jonathan Moyle, the 28-year-old editor of the magazine Defence Helicopter World and former RAF helicopter pilot, was found dead in room 1406 of the Santiago's Hotel Carrera on the 31st of March 1990. His purpose in Santiago was to attend a Chilean-sponsored defence conference. He was found hanging in a wardrobe with a pillowcase over his head, but a needle mark on his leg and blood on the bed was not considered in the first police analyst. He was interested in a Bell helicopter for civil use that the Chilean company Industras Cardone was converting to multi-use, especially for third world conditions and economies. At that time, just before the Gulf War, the invasion of Kuwait by Iraqi troops began on the 2nd of August 1990, Iraq was a potential customer for the helicopter. Moyle's death was considered initially by the Chilean and British authorities as suicide or death in some sort of bizarre sex game, but in December of 1991, after pressure from the Moyle family, a judicial investigation in Chile concluded he had been assassinated, but as the police couldn't identify any suspect, they halted the manhunt. Now, the United Kingdom inquest also into the death of Moyle opened in Exeter in November of 1990. It was adjourned by forensic doctor Richard Van Open after a pathologist said the autopsy could not be completed due to the fact that vital organs had been removed. In 1998, the reconvened inquest found that he had been unlawfully killed and the authorities later apologised to the family for spreading the allegation of suicide. Now, this is where the case gets particularly interesting. So, excerpts from an apparently unredacted version of a CIA report entitled Project Babylon, published in 2013 by the British magazine Lobster and in May 2014 by the newspaper Tribune, blame the murder of Jonathan Moyle on a British government agent, the late Stephen Adolphus Cock. The unredacted CIA report states, and I quote, Meantime, as we coordinated an MI6 setup, alleged nuclear capacitors shipped from the US by Euromac for Iraq was seized at Heathrow Airport. It led to the arrest of CEO Ali Dagir and Janine Speckman-Cock, found that defence journalist Jonathan Moyle possessed evidence of UK covert deals. Consequently, Cock and a third named agent eliminated him in Santiago, Chile, end quote. The dead man's father, retired teacher Tony Moyle, said the motive for the murder lay in Moyle's uncovering of information regarding arms shipments from Chile to Iraq. The family's claim of a concealment has been supported by a book, The Valkyrie Operation, on Moyle's death, written by Winsley Clarkson. The author alleges that Moyle had been killed by local hitmen hired by arms dealer Carlos Cardone, who denies he had any participation in Moyle's death. In late 1997, a Santiago Court of Appeal reopened the investigation into Jonathan Moore's death following representations from a lawyer representing the family. 
The editor of Lobster provided additional insight and context to the affair in a speech to the Centre for Security Analysts in London on the 8th of November 2000, and published in the summer 2001 edition of Lobster, issue number 41, explaining how the SISs are so awful to work for. He continued, and I quote, Take Jonathan Moyle, a not very bright, gung-ho queen and country man. Young Moyle, while at university at Aberswinth, was a special branch snitch who thought it was his patriotic duty to tell the local SB who was smoking dope. On graduating, he became an agent for, well, MI6 probably, though who knows? Moyle ended up being murdered in Chile. According to the book about him, Moyle wasn't very subtle as an intelligence asset and was poking around the Chilean's arm dealer Cardone, one of Mark Thatcher's friends, while Cardone was doing a big helicopter deal with the Iraqis. This was in the run-up to the American attack on Iraq. Moyle ended up dead in a wardrobe in Chile, and what does the local FCO guy do? Tells the media that Moyle was the victim of an autoerotic accident, strangled himself while having a wank, end quote. The death was also connected to the death of Danny Casolaro, which is another case I shall cover on another episode of this podcast. Now, most of the incidents I'm going to talk about occurred after the men have successfully completed important projects or left one job for another. Four of the men were employees of the GEC group, three at McConey and one at Eastman's LTD. Two others worked at separate times at the Royal Military College of Science at Shivenham. An investigation by Computer News established that most of the men were involved in computer simulation, a key part of defence procurement. At the time, GEC Marconi was Britain's only torpedo supplier and in 1986 was awarded a £400 million order from the Ministry of Defence for advanced anti-submarine stingray torpedoes. The Royal Military College at Shivenham is also involved in a number of British leading edge defence projects. The college develops new testing devices for the Military of Defence and is engaged as a subcontractor for defence companies on research and development. All the men involved were ambitious and demonstrated a special ability in the particular field. After every death, police gave unofficial press briefings providing journalists with plausible though unconfirmed explanations for the accidents or apparent suicides. The major problem for police has been the lack of obvious signs of depression in any of the cases. I mean, several British MPs demanded a government inquiry. The UK Ministry of Defence denied that these scientists had been involved in classified Star Wars projects and that the deaths were in any way connected, which I don't believe. I mean, you have over 30 to 40 people, I think it is. The list is huge. Of all these people that died under very mysterious circumstances and all the cases I don't think there's one that's ever been really explained and you're going to try and tell me that they were neither connected and they were not involved in anything classified well I don't believe that they're very mysterious and when we get into this list you guys will see how crazy this list is and how I'm amazed that these deaths were not considered suspicious in any way or they were kind of hushed up or not even looked into in some cases Now, interestingly enough, in West Germany in 1986, there were several incidents involving individuals associated with America's SDI, which is the Strategic Defense Initiative, dubbed Star Wars by the press. Now, the Strategic Defense Initiative, as I understand it, was an ambitious program by Ronald Reagan to create a space-based anti-nuclear weapon shield which would have rendered Soviet nuclear capability useless. Now, it has never been proven whether they were actually successful in achieving Reagan's goal. Obviously, this took place during the Cold War, so it isn't surprising that this information was never made public. So to start off this list of mysterious deaths, we have 1972 to 73 was Robert Wilson. He was 43 years old. His expertise was a former technical author for Marconi at Chemsfield, Essex. Now, Wilson was cleaning out his attic when he came across some confidential Marconi documents. When he took them to Marconi, he was interviewed at length. The next day, while cleaning his 45 revolver, he accidentally shot himself in the chest, or so it is claimed. However, he was a member of the local gun club and knew better than to clean a loaded gun with the muzzle pointing at himself. He himself described the incident as grotesque. 
Around May the following year, he had another accident. While servicing his car in his garage, he was overcome by fumes. This time, the accident was fatal. In March of 1973, we had Gerald Jack Darlow, who was 22 years old. He was employed by Marconi at Clemsfield, and he was found dead on his bed in his flat with a knife in his chest. He had previously made an unsuccessful attempt at suicide. In March of 1982, we have Professor Keith Bowden, 46, or aged 46. His expertise was computer programmer and scientist at Essex University, engaged in work for Marconi. He was hailed as an expert on supercomputers and computer-controlled aircraft. The circumstances of his death are extremely suspicious because in March of 1982, after being at a function, Keith Bowden had a fatal car crash when his vehicle went out of control across a dual carriageway and plunged onto a disused railway line. He died instantly. Now, police maintained he had been drinking, but family and friends all denied the allegation. During the inquest, police testified that Bowen's blood alcohol level had exceeded the legal limit and that he had been driving too fast. His death was ruled accidental. Police said Bowen was drunk and was driving too fast, but his wife, and solicitor believed otherwise because friends who were with Bowden that night denied he'd been drinking. Another odd aspect about this so-called accident was Bowden's solicitor hired an accident investigator to examine the wreck. Interestingly enough, somebody had swapped the normally pristine tyres on Bowden's rover with a set that were worn and old. At the inquest, this was not allowed to be brought up. Someone asked if the car was in sound condition and the answer was yes. Hillary, Bowden's wife in a state of shock, never protested the published verdict, yet she maintains and remains convinced that someone tampered with her husband's car. Quote, it certainly looked like foul play, she maintains. Coroner's verdict was that it was an accident, which I don't believe. In July of 1982, there was Jack Wolfenden, 56. He was a radio operator at GCHQ at Cheltenham. Though an experienced glider pilot, he had a fatal crash when his powered glider crashed into a Coltswold hillside in perfect flying weather, which sounds to me much like the suspicious death of Dr. Don Chumley, which I'll talk more about in my Oklahoma City bombing podcast episode. His girlfriend said he had been acting oddly lethargic and indecisive after returning from abroad. No indication of suicide, though. The verdict was his death was an accident. However, I'm not so convinced about that because what was odd about his death was that the accident occurred within a few days of the appearance in court of Jeffrey Prime. Now, he was a fellow worker at GCHQ who was subsequently jailed as a spy. His files named several colleagues who might be blackmailed or bribed to pass information on to the Soviets. However, strangely enough, the authorities denied any connection between Wolfenden's death and Prime's conviction. I tend to disagree and find the timing of the death to be very interesting. In 1982, there was Ernest Brockway, who was 43. He was employed at Urton Moor in one of GCHQ's largest grand stations. He was found hanged in his home, though he left no suicide note, and suicide was only presumed. His widow told reporters that her husband had been a sick man, and most oddly, she had been told by authorities to say nothing, which I find really weird, as with Wolfenden, the authorities also denied any link with spying. Then we come to 1983 with Stephen Drinkwater, who was aged 25. He was employed at Cheltenham in the only department where it is permitted to make copies of classified documents. He was found by his parents in his room asphyxiated with a plastic bag over his head. It was supposed that he had been involved in a sexual experiment, which again I find hard to believe and seems too coincidental to me. I also don't know if his parents were interviewed in regards to this. Also, what I find incredible and interesting about these spate of deaths is each man worked at GCHQ. There was a scandal involving espionage, and shortly thereafter, these men die, and the authorities try to hush it all up. GCHQ is the name that keeps cropping up over and over again, which cannot be a coincidence. 
Then in April of 1983, we have Lieutenant Colonel Anthony Godley, who was aged 49. His expertise was head of the work-study unit at the Royal College of Military Science. The circumstances of his death were that he disappeared mysteriously on a Saturday morning in April of 1983 without explanation to anyone. He spent the night at a hotel in Dover, leaving without paying his bill. His car was found at Folkestone, where his yacht was missing and has never been found. He is presumed dead. There is even more evidence suggesting this, because when his father died in 1987, he left Godley a rather large sum of money which he never showed up to receive. The other odd aspect about this is how his wife left their married quarters at RMCS within 24 hours without making any comment on her husband's disappearance. Then we come to April 6th of 1984 and we have George Franks, who's 58 years old. He was a radio specialist at GCHQ, engaged in highly classified defense work, originally said to have been hanged in his Sussex home, leaving a suicide note. However, it was subsequently stated that he died of a heart attack and the verdict was natural causes. What was unusual about this death was that the original statement seems to have been totally false, but how this error originated only adds to the mystery. Then it got even weirder because the name of the victim was not at first disclosed and a news blackout followed his death. The authorities explained this was out of concern for his family, yet no family member appeared except for his sister who had not seen him for four months. A neighbour stated Franks only received two phone calls a week, mostly from a man who identified himself in code. Now, how the neighbour knew about this has never been explained. Another weird aspect to the case that's never been explained is anticipating his heart attack. Frank bundled up a number of papers with directions they were to be given to his sister only. However, they were for some reason given to police and only some of the documents, the contents of which remain disputed, were passed on to his sister. A partially concealed malt whiskey bottle and a bottle of tablets were found near the body. Strange thing was, they were said to have no relevance to his death, which I find very odd because some medication if mixed with alcohol can cause heart problems and can also induce a heart attack. So why this was so hastily ruled out as the cause of death mystifies me. And to make matters even more interesting, a friend revealed that he had been in serious dispute with his employers at GCHQ, but could not elaborate, possibly related to his taste in pornography, which had caused apparently some problems at work, although how the magazines were discovered and why the matter was taken so seriously was never made clear. Then in 1985, we have Stephen Oak, who was age 35. He worked at GCHQ's listening post at Morinstow, Cornwall. His work apparently had no security aspect, though he had access to sensitive material. He was found hanging from a beam in the loft of his home while his wife and children were away for a few days. No apparent reason for suicide was ever found. The verdict was open because this case has some sinister undertones and some very interesting clues that never added up. For instance, a piece of string was tied around his hands. However, the police claimed that he could would have tied it himself, which I don't believe. Cigarettes were found nearby, though Oak did not smoke. An empty brandy bottle was found in the dustbin, however it was noted that Oak disliked spirits. To me, based on this evidence, it seems obvious that Oak had visitors who helped him with being hanged from the beam in the loft. Why this avenue of inquiry was never investigated by the police and law enforcement remains unknown. Then we come to March of 1985 with Roger Hill. He was 49. Now, his expertise was a radar designer at Draftsman with McConey. The circumstances of his death was that he died by a shotgun blast at his home and the coroner's verdict was a suicide. Then on November 19th of 1985, we have Jonathan Walsh, who was age 29. His expertise was digital communications expert who had worked at GEC and at British Telecom's Secret Research Centre at Marshallham Heath, Suffolk. The circumstances of his death was that he died as a result from falling from a hotel 
hotel room in Abidjan, West Africa, while working for British Telecom. He expressed fears that his life was in danger, and for reasons that remain unexplained, conflicting evidence left the exact circumstances of his death unclear, and raised the possibility of a struggle before his fall. The other really odd aspect to this case was that he had for some reason secretly booked a flight to Britain for the following day. The coroner's verdict on this one remains open. In August 5th of 1986, we have Vimal Dejabai, 24. His expertise was a computer software engineer with Marconi, responsible for testing computer control systems of Tigerfish and Stingray torpedoes at Marconi Underwater Systems at Croxley Green, Herodsfshire, and also working on an SDI-related simulation system. Now, the circumstances of his death was that Dejabai told his wife he would be working late and then drove 100 miles to Bristol, a city which he had no known connection, and fell 260 feet or 80 metres from the Clifton Suspension Bridge over the River Avon. Dejabai was found with his pants around his ankles and a needle-sized puncture wound on his buttock. The Bristol coroner was concerned by this. It was a mystery then and remains a mystery now. End quote. Investigating journalists found discrepancies in other evidence. A police report noted a puncture mark on Dejabai's left buttock after his fall from the bridge, explained Tony Collins, who covered the story for Britain's computer news magazine. Apparently, this was the reason his funeral was halted seconds before the cremation was to take place. Members of the family were told that the body was to be taken away for a second post-mortem to be done by a top home office pathologist. That's not normal. Then a few months later, police held a press conference and announced that it hadn't been a puncture mark at all, that it was a wound caused by a bone fragment. The results of this second post-mortem have never, to my knowledge, been released. I find it very difficult to reconcile the initial coroner's report with what the police were saying a few months later, Colin contends. An inquest was unable to determine whether Dejabai had been pushed off the bridge or whether he had jumped. There had been no witnesses and the verdict was left open, yet authorities did their best to pin his death on suicide, which I really don't know why he would have had his death pinned on a suicide and why the authorities were so adamant they wanted it to be just a suicide. Kind of like the whole thing about thou doth protest too much. You're trying to tell me that something is something else. I'm not going to believe it. Kind of like, you know, thou doth protest too much is basically if you're trying to push me into believing something, the opposite's likely to be true. If you're trying to tell me something didn't happen, obviously it did happen. Which is suspicious in and of itself, that is, that they were pushing for a suicide verdict. Police testified that Dejabai had been suffering from depression, something his family and friends flatly denied. Dejabai had absolutely no history of personal or emotional problems. Police also claimed that the deceased had been drinking with a friend, Hayat Shah, shortly before his death, and that a bottle of wine and two used paper cups had been found in his car. Yet forensic tests were never done on the auto, and those who knew Vimal, including Shah, say that he'd never taken a drink of alcohol in his life. Dejabai had been looking forward to starting a new job in the city of London, and friends had confirmed there was no reason for him to commit suicide. At the time of his death, he was also in his last week of work with McConey. Coroner's verdict on this one remains open. In October of 1986, there's, we had Arshad Sharif, who was 26. His expertise reported to have been working on systems for the detection of submarines by satellite. The circumstances surrounding his death was that he died as a result of placing a nylon rope around his neck, tying the other into a tree, and then driving off in his car with the accelerator pedal jammed down. His unusual death was complicated by several issues. Okay, so first off is Sharif lived near Vimal Dejabai in Stanmore, Middlesex. He committed suicide in Bristol and inexplicably had spent the last night of his life in a rooming house. He had paid for his accommodation in cash and was seen to have a bundle of high-denomination banknotes in his possession. 
While the police were told of the banknotes, no mention was made of them at the inquest, and they were never found on his body. What happened to them remains unknown, and where he got the money from also remains unknown. Which to me is odd, because having that kind of money raises questions such as, where did he get the money? Why did he have so much on him? And most important of all, where did it all go, and why was it never brought up or looked into? In addition, most of the other guests at the rooming house worked at British Aerospace. Prior to working for Marconi, Shriff had also worked at British Aerospace on guided weapons technology. A relative summoned to identify the body noticed something suspicious about his car. What happened to be a metal rod was lying on the floor of the car next to the accelerator. Had it been used to witch down the pedal? The coroner wasn't happy. I mean, this is past coincidence. I'll be not be completing this inquest until I know how two men with no connection to Bristol came to meet the same end here. End quote. But both men were suspected to be working on a top-secret project called Cosmos, which involved underwater guidance systems, establishing a further connection between the pair. The deaths of Sharif and Dajabai were the first to raise eyebrows, and authorities quickly moved to offer viable reasons for the coincidental loss of lives. Investigators proposed that Sharif was depressed over a recent breakup. However, the lover in question maintained that she had not seen Sharif in over three years. The woman police unofficially say was his lover contends that she was only his landlady when he was working for British Aerospace in Bristol. She's married, has three children, and she's deeply religious. The possibility of the two having an affair seems extremely and highly unlikely. Discounting the jilted lover theory, another woman from Pakistan came forward and admitted that she was his fiancée. Sharif's family confirmed the relationship and said he had generally been in love with her and that she was due to arrive in town soon for a visit. Authorities next said a taped message had been found in the car which appeared to them to be a verbal suicide note. On it, officers said he'd admitted to having an affair, thus bringing shame on his family. Family members who've heard the tape say that it actually gave no indication of why Sharif might want to kill himself. Family members listened to the tape and disagreed. They were reportedly informed by the coroner that it was not in their best interest to attend the inquest. Other interesting points to note was that the four lengths of rope were found in the car, but a receipt found in the car was only for one length of rope. Stranger still, on the day of his death, he had an appointment with his MP, Member of Parliament, and it is presumed to discuss delays in the entry permit for his Pakistani bride. The coroner's verdict, unfortunately, was suicide, which I don't believe at all. Then in January of 1987, we have Richard Pugh, who was 37. His expertise was Ministry of Defence Computer Consultant and Digital Communications Expert. The circumstances surrounding his death was that he was found in his flat with his feet bound in a plastic bag over his head. Rope was tied around the body, coiling four times around his neck. The coroner's verdict was that it was an accident due to sexual misadventure, as it was thought that he was practicing what is known as autoerotic asphyxiation, where it is believed that while you suffocate you have an orgasm at the same time the orgasm is supposed to be much more powerful an extremely dangerous practice although in this case it seems to me to be all too convenient that his death was ruled as such in January 8th of 1987, we had Avtar Singida, who was 26. His expertise was researcher at the Ministry of Defense Admiralty Research Establishment, conducting tests of submarine warfare equipment. The circumstances of his disappearance, because he disappeared mysteriously in January of 1987 during his doctoral thesis on underwater signal processing at Laubora University, just three weeks away from his project's successful completion. Gita vanished just two days before his wedding anniversary and had already bought his wife a gift for the occasion. Now, he was last seen with a colleague near a reservoir in Derbyshire in northern England where they were conducting an experiment in underwater acoustics. The two separated for lunch and Singida never returned. Police divers searched 
searched the area around the lake but found no body in the reservoir. Authorities feared foul play. They were particularly concerned because of Singida's relationship with Dujabai, who had died mysteriously the, the August prior. But Singida was discovered in Paris four months later on May 8th of 1987, working under an assumed name in a sweatshop filled with illegal immigrants. He was found in part due to a tip-off by police to a derby to a derby journalist. Authorities said he told them he could not remember any details of his disappearance. He later resumed his scientific work and to date has re refused to discuss his disappearance nor the death of his colleague, Vimal Dejabai, with anyone. His wife also stated that he had been very disturbed by the death of the previous August of Dejabai, who was also a known acquaintance. Why he was left alive and wasn't killed remains a mystery to me as he is the only person on this list who wasn't killed. Then we come to January 12th of 1987 with Dr. John Breton, who was 52. His expertise was signed, he was a scientist formerly engaged in top secret work at the Royal College of Military Science at Shervenham, Oxfordshire, and later deployed in a research department at the Ministry of Defence. Now, the circumstances of his death was that he had a very weird car accident in December of 1986 in which he lost control and drove into a ditch. But what was strange about it was he later told colleagues that he could not understand how it happened. It might be possible that someone tampered with his car, although whether it was examined remains unknown, like a lot of things in these cases. In January, he paid a working visit to the US and returned with a throat infection, which made him take time off work. January 12th was to have been his day when he returned, but he was found dead sitting in his car in the garage of his Camberley home due to carbon monoxide poisoning. It was supposed that he had been warming up his car and forgotten to open the garage door. Problem with that was he had no reason to kill himself. The coroner's verdict was returned as an accident. In February of 1987, we have David Skeels, who was age 43. His expertise was that he was an engineer with Marconi. The circumstances surrounding his death was that he was found in his car with a hosepipe connected to the exhaust. The coroner's verdict, for some reason, remains open. In February of 1987, we have Victor Moore, 46. His expertise was design engineer with Marconi Space and Defense Systems. The circumstances of his death was that he died from a drug overdose. Moore had just finished work on infrared satellites at Portsmouth when he was found dead. For reasons that remain unknown, his death is said to have instigated an MI5 investigation, the results of which remain secret. There was also a separate investigation into Marconi based at Portsmouth by the Ministry of Defense Syria's Crime Squad. Coroner's verdict was returned as a suicide. Then on February 27th of 1987, we have Peter Peepel, or Peepel. He was aged 46. His expertise was that he was a scientist at the Royal College of Military Science. He had been working on testing titanium for its resistance to explosives and the use of computer analysts of signals from metals. The circumstances of his death was that he was found allegedly dead from carbon monoxide poisoning in his Oxfordshire garage. The circumstances of his death raised some elements of doubt. Having spent an evening with his friends, he and his wife returned home and people went to put away the car. The next morning, Maureen discovered that her husband had not come to bed. She found him in the garage, his body parallel to the car's rear bumper with his mouth near the tailpipe. The car's engine was still running. She pulled him into the open air, but he was already dead. It was proposed that he had crawled under the car to investigate a rattle or some similar mechanical failure and had been overcome by the automobile's fumes. However, Maureen reportedly noted that the light in the garage was broken and people was not found with a flashlight in his possession. Police were apparently baffled as to how he could have manoeuvred into the position in which he was found. Doubts were of course raised and a local constable attempted to recreate the deadly scene. He found that with the garage door closed, he was unable to crawl underneath the car. The constable also noted that it was not possible to close the garage door from Papel's position, indicating Papel would have had to have closed the door before he moved under the car. 
Investigative reports notes the carbon deposits found on the inside of the garage door showed the car had only been running a short period of time. Maureen had arisen from her sleep and found, that the, body, found the body seven hours after going to bed. It was confirmed that PayPal had shown no signs of stress which could have caused him to commit suicide. His death followed the somewhat similar death of Dr. John Britton. At the time of his death, PayPal no longer worked at the Royal College of Military Science and had moved to a research department of the Ministry of Defence. Interestingly, both PayPal and Britain had both or Britain had both worked at the Royal College of Military Science, and furthermore, both had been on a recent trip to the US in connection with their work. Coroner's verdict remains open. The next person on this list is John Whitman. He supposedly drowned himself in his bathtub, the body surrounded by pills and empty alcohol bottles, yet the autopsy revealed no traces of drugs or alcohol in his body. On March 30th, 1987, we have David Sands, who was 37. His expertise was senior scientist working for Eastman's of Camberley, Surrey, a sister company to Marconi. Dr. John Britton had also worked at Camberley. The circumstances of his death was a fatal car crash when he made a sudden U-turn on a dual carriageway while on his way to work, crashing at high speed into the disused cafeteria. He was found still wearing his seatbelt, and it was discovered that in his car were two additional five-gallon drums full of petrol, causing the car to be completely consumed by a fire. Fireball. Sands was only identified with reference to his dental records, and none of the normal reasons for a possible suicide could be found. Another odd and sinister aspect that has never been explained is that the investigators could find no clue as to who put the gasoline tanks in his car before he embarked on his fatal ride. Even more bizarre was that given the suspicious circumstances, the coroner refused to rule Sands' death a suicide, and open verdict was returned. Soon thereafter, the newspapers received leaked information hinting that Sands had been depressed and under tremendous emotional stress. Strain. His mother-in-law Margaret Worth quickly dismissed the claims. Quote, when David died, it was a great mystery to us. He was very successful. He was very confident. He had just pulled off a great coup after for his company, and he was about to be greatly rewarded. He had a very bright future ahead of him. He was perfectly happy the week before this happened. End quote. The coroner's verdict remains open on this case. On April 10th of 1987, we have Stuart Gooding, who was 23. His expertise was postgraduate research student at the Royal College of Military Science. The circumstances of his death was another fatal car crash while on holiday in Cyprus. He died instantly when his hired car collided head-on with a lorry. The lorry driver was said to be unhurt. At least one senior employee at the college considered that his death could be significant. Interestingly enough, it turned out this death occurred at the same time as RMCS college personnel were carrying out military exercises sizes in Cyprus. The coroner's verdict on, on the matter was that it was an accident. On April 10th of 1987, we have David Robert Green, Greenhalgh, 46. His expertise was that he was a contracts manager at ICL's Defence Division at Winersh near Reading. The circumstances of his death was that he suffered multiple injuries after a mysterious leap from a 12-metre, 40-foot high railway bridge on his way to work at Maidenhead, Berkshire, the same day as Stuart Gooding's fatal car crash. The firm admitted he had been positively vetted and may have had access to secret UK and NATO data. He was working on the same defence project as David Sands, who had died less than two weeks earlier. He survived the fall and stated that he had no idea how or why he leapt from the bridge. He died a few days later in hospital. On April 14th of 1987, we have Mark Weisner, age 24. He was a software engineer at the Aeroplane and Armament Experimental Establishment at Boscombe Down. He was found dead at his home at Durrington wearing woman boost and suspenders with a plastic sack over his head and cling film wrapped around his face. He was said to be a transvestite in his leisure hours and his death was perceived as an unsuccessful sexual experiment. Although I do find his death to be interesting because it could very well have been a setup to look like an accident. 
because accident by sexual misadventure has been used in the past in a lot of espionage cases to make a murder appear as an accident and to humiliate the person who was killed. On April 17th of 1987, we have George Countess. His age is unknown. His expertise was system analyst at Bristol Polytechnic. Now, the circumstances surrounding the death was he drowned the same day as Shani Warren as a result of a car accident, his upturned car being found in the River Mercy in Liverpool. The coroner's verdict was misadventure, which I, I find this ruling to be bizarre given the circumstances. I've no idea how the coroner came to rule this guy's death as a misadventure. Countess's sister obviously felt the same way because she called for a fresh, in- fresh inquest as she thought things didn't add up. On April 17th, the same day in 1987, we have Shani Warren, 26. She was personal assistant in a company called Microscope, which was taken over by GEC Marconi less than four weeks after her death. The circumstances surrounding her death was that she was found drowned in 18 inches of water not far from the site of David Greenhalgh's bridge fall. Warren died exactly one week after the death of Stuart Gooding and serious injury to Greenhalgh, and the same day as the death of George Countess. She was found gagged with a noose around her neck. Her feet were also so bound and her hands tied behind her back. The reason I don't believe a word of this is that that Warren had gagged herself, tied her feet with a rope, then tied her hands behind her back and hobbled to a lake on stiletto heels to drown herself, which is just ridiculous. There isn't any possible way that she could have done this without someone's help. The suicide theory, however, was supported by the fact that supposedly the only footprints that were found were her stiletto high heels. This isn't the case, however, because when a reconstruction was done, it turned out that someone who was wearing flat shoes would leave no marks. That coupled with the fact that her car that was parked nearby had a defective gearbox and the contents of which was strewn around the grass nearby as though it had been searched. Even more puzzling was the police investigation for some unknown reason was very unenthusiastic. The coroner's verdict on her death remains open. Then in May of 1987, we have Michael Baker, who's age 22. His expertise was digital communications expert working on a defense project at Plessy, part-time member of Signal Corps SAS. The circumstances of his death was that on a fishing trip with two friends, his car crossed the highway and crashed through the barrier. His two companions were uninjured, but he was killed. The weird part about that to me was that his mother reported that he had not wanted to go, but someone came to the door for him. Then he left, and he ends up being the only one killed. I mean, to me, it's sounds as if he was set up to be killed and it was made to look like an accident. It also turned out that he was a part-time member of the SAS Special Air Service Squadron with MOD Connections. Coroner's verdict was misadventure. Again, this verdict seems strange to me. I mean, you've got a guy that didn't want to go on a fishing trip. Someone came to the door and got him, and he's the only one that's killed in a very mysterious car accident. How is it you have three people in a car and only one of them ends up dead? I find, and, and why didn't he want to go on the trip? It's a little bit strange. That really kind of weird. In June 1987, we have Frank Jennings, who is age 60. His expertise was electronic weapons engineer with Plessy. The circumstances of his death was that he was found dead from a heart attack, and there was no inquest. In January of 1988, we have Russell Smith, who was 23. His expertise was laboratory technician with the Atomic Energy Research Establishment at Harwell, Essex. The circumstances of his death was that 23-year-old Russell Smith, a lab technician at the Atomic Energy Research Establishment, fell to his death from a cliff in Cornwall in January of 1988. Police began searching for 23-year-old Russell Smith in mid-January after he vanished from his parents' home where he lived. He had previously asked for a day off from his job at the Atomic Energy Authority in Harwell, 50 miles west of London. His death was ruled a suicide. Coroner's verdict was that it was a suicide. In March 25th of 1988, we have Trevor Knight, who was 52. 
His expertise was he was a computer engineer with Marconi Space and Defense Systems in Stanmore, Middlesex. The circumstances of his death was that he was found at home in Harperden, Hedfordshire, at the wheel of his car with a hosepipe connected to the exhaust. A state Albans coroner said the Knight's woman friend, Miss Naranda Thankey, who also worked with him at Marconi, had found three suicide notes left by him which made clear his intentions. Strange thing about this was the contents was never disclosed and those who have seen them refused to comment about them. Miss Thankey had mentioned that Knight disliked his work but she did not detect any depression that would have driven him to suicide. The previous day he had also called his mother sounding quite happy and making plans for the weekend. The coroner's verdict was a suicide although I am very highly skeptical about that. In August of 1988, we have Alistair Beckham, who was 50. His expertise was he was a software engineer with Plessy Defense Systems. The circumstances surrounding his death was that he was found dead in his dark, musty backyard tool shed behind his home. Bare wires leading from a live electrical main were wrapped around his chest with a piece of cloth stuffed in his mouth. A paper clip was placed across the electrical main to ensure the breaker did not trip while the electrical current ran through his body. His wife noted that Beckham had installed a wide-angle peephole on the door of the tool shed. Beckham's wife was, in, was entirely unconvinced her husband committed suicide, and she stated that, and I quote, We don't know why he did it, if he did it, and I don't believe that he did do it. He wouldn't go out to the shed to do that. There had to be something... Beckham was highly secretive about his work, and just hours after his death, men from the Ministry of Defence arrived at the scene and took away several documents and files from Beckham's home. Coroner's verdict remains open. On August 22nd of 1988, we have Peter Ferry, who was aged 60. His expertise was that he was, a, he was a retired army brigadier and an assistant marketing director with Marconi. The circumstances surrounding his death was that he was found in his apartment in August of 1988. His body was found on the floor of the apartment. The stripped ends of an electrical cord were in his mouth. A sinister aspect to this case was that his wife noted that one month before his death, a truck had purposely swerved at him and his daughter while they drove to the store. The incident left Ferry shaken and afraid for his life. His death could not be ruled suicide nor homicide, and the coroner's ruling remains open. In September of 1988, we have Andrew Hall, 33. His expertise was that he was an, an engineering manager with British Aerospace. The circumstances surrounding his death was that it was carbon monoxide poisoning in a car with a hosepipe connected to the exhaust, and the coroner's verdict was ruled a suicide. Now, the most astonishing thing about all these deaths is not only is it statistically impossible for this to be normal, but the Conservative government of Margaret Thatcher dismissed calls for an inquiry claiming the deaths were not statistically unusual and were just coincidence, perhaps, they claimed, exacerbated by high levels of stress in the defence industry, which doesn't hold water with me. Professor Colin Pritchard, a noted expert in mental illness and suicides, thinks at least some of the deaths were statistically uncommon. Whilst it's true suicide is one of the most prevalent causes of early death in men, especially young men, Pritchard believes factors in some of the cases make the suicide verdicts unlikely. I mean, Pritchard cites the cases of at least four of the men that shared unusual elements. All four men had complained to friends and family that they'd been tasked strange, impossible, and unscientific tasks by their employers. All four men committed suicide in incredibly violent and bizarre ways. Pritchard has studied numerous suicide cases and thinks such extreme suicide methods are normally only associated with people suffering severe mental breakdowns to the extent they would be unable to even hold down jobs. Yet the men were all employed up until the day of their deaths and none had shown any sign of mental illness or other disturbance. All of the men had also recently found new jobs and were preparing to leave within days of their deaths. Likewise, all four men had recently arranged appointments with their MPs, which is interesting because if one person was to do it, you'd put it down to nothing much at all. But four men working in the same field who all died asked to see their MP? That to me is something more than just a mere coincidence. 
The question then becomes, what were the strange, unscientific projects the men were complaining of, and why had they all booked appointments with their MPs? Had they stumbled on something in their jobs that had worried them, something that led them to be silenced? In all honesty, I believe so. The old saying of dead men tell no tales seems to permeate the air in this case. The biggest thing that got me was the death by sexual misadventure. See, there is no easier way to make a murder look like an accident or suicide than make it look like a sex game gone horribly wrong. Several of the deaths were put down as sex games gone wrong, but intelligence expert Conard Black says death by sexual misadventure is a common method of disguising murder in the world of espionage. Black told the Daily Record, and I quote, Disposing of an enemy and making it look like perverted fantasy gone wrong is in the training manuals of every spy agency from MI6 to Mossad. The sex game cover is a very useful useful mechanism in a murder. Not only does it provide a disguise for the actual means and method of death, it trashes the reputation of the victim and blunts the energy of any subsequent investigation." End quote. This is why the coroner's verdict for me doesn't hold water. One death like this, perhaps, but to have two deaths, both related to Marconi, both done in similar fashion? I don't buy it. The other reason was it was never made clear if both men's history were checked if they were even into that sort of sexual kink. If not, that would raise red flags for me. For someone to perform a sex act they don't like and to be found like that says to me the scene was staged. Another possible reason for the spate of deaths is that according to a high-ranking British government official, for a year and a half, the Ministry of Defence has been secretly investigating Marconi on allegations of defence contract fraud, overcharging the government and bribing officials. The extensive probe was requ had required most of the MOD's investigative resources, conceivably reaching as far as Marconi's subcontractors and into MOD research facilities such as the Royal Military College of Science and the Royal Air Force Research Centre. Another link in the chain was that almost all of the dead scientists were associated with one or more of these establishments. If Marconi was systematically defrauding the government of, for millions of pounds each year, perhaps an employee stumbled upon incriminating evidence and had to be done away with. It would be easy to make it look like an accident. We may never know who or what killed all these scientists, although everyone has a theory. The National Forum Foundation, a conservative Washington DC think tank, believes the, death are the, work, the deaths are the work of European-based left-wing terrorists, such as the Red Army faction who took credit for gunning down a West German bureaucrat who negotiated Star Wars contracts, Ernest Zimmerman, who was shot to death at his home near Munich in February of 1985. The group also claims that July 1986 bombing death of a researcher director Karl Heinz Burkert from the Simons Company, a high-tech West German electronics firm. The terrorists apparently chose their targets to seek to exploit opposition to nuclear power and to West German cooperation in research on the US Strategic Defense Initiative, or Star Wars. A seven-page letter signed by the Red Army faction and displayed at a news conference at the Federal Prosecutor's Office in Karlsruhe cited secret negotiations involving Simons in a possible role in the SDI research program. They have yet to take credit for any of the scientists, however. With that, this case remains open, but with many unanswered questions that still remain unanswered. Please rate the show, let me know what you guys think about this and the many other cases I have covered. You can follow me on all major social media platforms, YouTube, BitChute, Dailymotion. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram. Links are all down below in the description. If you have a case you'd like me to have a look at or cover, don't hesitate to send me a message. I'm your host, and this has been the Unanswered Questions Podcast. Until next time, next on Unanswered Questions. Now this is where the story should have ended, however it was only just the beginning of something much larger in size and scope than anyone at that time could ever have foreseen.